HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to this special episode of HRN On Tour. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director here at HRN. And today we're going to be having a little preview towards an event that we're very excited about, Slow Food Nations. And I'm with two folks who are going to be there as well. We have Joe Fassler, the Features Editor at New Food Economy, and Kate Cox, the Editor at New Food Economy. Welcome to you both. Hi, thank you. Yeah, good to be here. So we'll get into, into Slow Food Nations in a little bit and talk about what role you guys are both playing at the festival but for anyone who's unfamiliar with New Food Economy, can you tell me what it is and kind of a little bit about the history? Which one do you want to take, Joe? Uh, I can talk to you about what it is. Yeah. Because <laughs> the history is nonlinear. Yeah. Um, so we're an online only um, magazine. We cover the forces shaping how and what we eat. So most of our stories are from the politics or economic side of food in some way. Um, we publish every day, we run, write the news, run features. Um, and we've been publishing about three years, although the first year of that was in beta. Yeah, we have we have some exciting projects coming up uh, for the year. We're starting a podcast and, and doing all all these um, uh, programming in July, actually, around the topic of meat um, that we're timing to uh, Kate's panel that we'll talk about about conscious carnivorism. Um, so, uh, yeah, we you know we're still a fairly young media enterprise and and um, feeling out you know different formats and, and things we can do. But basically, you know, we, we like to think if you subscribe to our newsletter, um, if you if you look at the site once a week, you can have a, a pretty clear sense of, of sort of the most meaningful stories that are developing in food and, and have a very good sense of what's going on. What are some of the stories that have been covered in the past, say, month or so that um, you think people should have an eye on? There's been a lot happening in legislation. So we do cover policy, um, and the, the news in food is the Farm Bill, which the Senate passed very uncontentiously last week, but two weeks before that, the House uh, really struggled to pass. Um, we cover some form of the Farm Bill almost every day, very much pinned to uh, food assistance programs like SNAP or, or food stamps. The other interesting thing that was very newsy that came up in the last month or so was the Supreme Court decision on Masterpiece Cakes v. Phillips, which came out of Colorado, which was actually a decision in favor of the Colorado cake baker who refused to bake a wedding cake for a, a gay couple. Those are two of the more news-driven, I think, stories that continue to be moving swiftly that we covered quickly. Um, and Joe, you could probably talk about the features. 
Yeah. Um, I was thinking, too, on Friday, we may have to do something short on this today. Uh, we've been cover- covering cellular ag a lot and so-called clean meat. Um, and there was an announcement by the FDA that it would be under their purview as opposed to USDA because this is a totally new um, kind of food, you know, meat that's grown without the use of, of animals. Um, and nobody's quite sure how to regulate it or what to call it. So that's, that's something that seems to be bubbling up uh, more and more often that we're, that we're keeping a pretty close eye on. Um, in terms of features, we, uh, the, the sort of biggest feature we did recently was about um, rural Kansas and how um, the sort of form of highly mechanized commodity grain agriculture that's there has, has um, really had a sort of uh, inverse... <laughs> You know, the more grain there is, the fewer people they are. Um, and so it's about the drivers of, of depopulation in the state. And we had a reporter who went out there and, and spent, you know, weeks on the ground um, just driving around and talking to people and asking them, you know, what, what's up with the state? And, and um, she found some pretty surprising conclusions. Um, so that was a major endeavor for us that I, I definitely suggest new readers could look at. What are some other features we've, we've published recently? Uh... Well, thinking about, so we've done some, some investigations. Um, mm-hmm. Claire Brown, our staff writer, has done a number of investigations on Amazon uh, as, a, as a primary um, employer of SNAP recipients. That's a partnership that we did with The Intercept. Um, and we, can, we continue to cover Amazon in the ways that it's been changing food, the way that it changes how uh, people think about where we, you know, how it's sort of rethinking the grocery store and industry that was already kind of in peril. Um, so, but, but the, I should say the Kansas feature was sort of an interesting departure for us in the sense that it was the longest feature we've ever run. It was over 5,000 words. So in some, in some ways it was a test of our audience's, um, appetite for lack of a better word for really in-depth stories about the way that rural America is changing. And it kind of put us on the map in a lot of ways. It was our most read story ever. Um, and so when Joe and I commissioned that piece, I don't think we ever anticipated that people really wanted to talk about the way that rural America is depopulating itself mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, yeah. And how did you decide that that would be not necessarily a risk, but a, a leap you'd take into that level of in-depth journalism on such a seemingly specific topic? Well, part of it had to do with this specific writer, Corey Brown, who's um, a, a really experienced journalist. Um, we know her through the Chef's Collaborative organization where she d- helps with a lot of their programming work. And she's, you know, she's a veteran journalist and, and we'd worked with her before. Um, but, but maybe even more importantly, she's from Kansas and she grew up there um, and has lived now in California for years and, and hasn't lived in the state for a long time. But we thought she'd be able to approach it with a kind of sensitivity and history um, that would be hard to do if, if you didn't know the state intimately. So she, she writes about visiting, you know, some of the towns that she remembers going to weddings in and visiting friends and, and how some of them are more or less ghost towns at this point. Um, and that's a kind of perspective that's that's sort of rare, especially for a place that uh, folks don't go to visit, you know. And that this in the lead of her story, she talked about how Kansas is a state where most people drive through on the highway or fly over it. Um, and explicitly she tried to drive around keeping off the highway and see all those places that you wouldn't unless you were a native. Um, so just her, you know, sometimes you, uh, you talk to a writer and you know that they, only they can tell the story. 
um, the way that it needs to be told. And, and that was the sense we got with Corey on this one. And in a way, that piece is kind of counterintuitive, which I think is why I would encourage new readers to, to dive into that one first, more even than our newsy stuff. Because when we told people we were running a piece on rural depopulation, you know, their eyes kind of glaze over. But it's risky in two ways. A, because it was a long feature and it was a departure for us. But also because it covers, it addresses an unintended consequence of the success of the commodity system. And that's a really hard um, conversation for people to swallow. So I think that's kind of, it was exciting in that way. Because it wasn't a condemnation. It was much more... Um, a meditation almost on how really successful farmers have in an unintended way run all the people out of of rural states like Kansas and so that was it was a revelation for us I think yeah in fact an unintended consequence of their success has been depopulation and sort of reckoning with that but it's a good example for another reason which is that um, sometimes we take kind of a of a loose definition of, of, of what food is when we when we talk about our writing you know we're not always um looking at you know the food on the plate at the restaurant or something that's that's on the shelf um we're doing a story this week on um on rural broadband access um and how the the rates of broadband which the government has put a lot of money into and is has really you know crowed about the success of it actually don't seem to line up quite precisely with with what they're claiming um and so it's not it's not about food specifically but it's about about rural life and it has implications for farming because more and more you know combines are running on gps thing you know and and technology that really requires um broadband and so um what we try to do is is look at not just food you know and not just food porn and restaurants and the latest chef but all of the various cultural and political, technological, economic conversations surrounding food, um, and that really shape the way that we eat and, and dig in as deeply as we can. It seems that a lot of the reporting recently has focused so much on rural America, and obviously it's been kind of a hot topic in the past couple of years about this lack of understanding between urban and rural Americans. Do you think that some of this reporting that New Food Economy is doing is in response to that? Maybe in an unstated way. Uh, you know, we tend to, to chase down the things that seem to have um, immediate impact that people can look at in their own lives and make a connection to. Um, and, I, and I think we saw food media as really siloed and for a very long time. And so it would be flyover coverage of rural America in a sort of, I don't know, pastoral, bucolic kind of narrative Um, But what we saw when we talked to people on the ground, whether it was about policy or legislation, is that their lives are directly and intensely impacted by what's happening, particularly in this White House. Mm -hmm. Um, And that felt like time to cover. But I'm not sure we ever sat down as an editorial team and said, like, time to cover rural America. But so much of what we write about has its home in that part of the country. So we would be remiss if we didn't dedicate a pretty significant amount of coverage to the big culture and political shifts that are that are happening in the Midwest, yeah. in particular. Yeah, and some of them, you know, some of the things happening in food are. Um, it's not just about the election. You know, the the the, the election is indicative of of things that were already kind of happening um, and a symptom of some 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 larger changes. So in the Kansas story, you know, she talks about how um, uh, when he was governor, Sam Brownback's tax cuts, you know, basically sort of destroyed the state's 
education system and tax base for like a generation. Um, and they're still wrestling with that now and they've had to undo a lot of it, you know, even just to get by and, and pay the bills. Um, so in a way that has everything to do with, with Trump and that conversation of, you know, this disconnect, um, between urban and, and rural. Um, but in other ways it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the sort of culmination of things that have been going on a long time and, and just very re relevant to agriculture. Um, I think another part of it, and we struggle to overcome this, is, is a lot of the sort of veteran um, reporters in our space are, are very focused on farms and farming. And, and that's a great thing, and we love to have pitches from these, but from these kinds of reporters. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a constant, I would say, challenge and opportunity for us to have a balance so we're not just reporting on farming because we really aren't the new farm economy. You know, we, we, we love to write about, you know, about restaurants and things going in, into cities and, and issues that extend far beyond agriculture um, and really are about, you know, about culture. Um, but there's not as many, you know, long-term freelancers necessarily doing that. So it's something where, you know, pitch us. We're, we're always looking for that kind of thing. One feature I remember you wrote about was about an organization in Atlanta. And this is speaking to content that's, beyond farms and is actually more about restaurants. It was about an organization called the Giving Kitchen, which is there as a kind of a support net for restaurant workers who, if they find themselves out of work, they don't have insur health insurance and they really don't, you know, this is kind of a life or death situation um, for many of them because they have no way to support their families. And what struck me about that piece was the amount of data that was in it. And I feel like that's something that's really important to a lot of the work that new food economy does is really to back up the reporting with the numbers and to show people what's, what's going on. Yeah. I think more and more that's been an opportunity for us. Um, and one thing that we're constantly struggling with is, is food is so emotional. People have so many, um, just assumptions that ingrained assumptions that they often come to food and the conversation about food with. Um, and you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's a challenge and a service, I think, to try to shake people free of that a little bit because the reality is almost always more complicated than the sort of various, um, you know, factions within food make it out to be. And one great way to do that is through data. You know, you can really have some surprising conclusions that it's not just somebody's take, but that you can really back up. So it requires a lot of resources from us, but but it's absolutely um, a, a, a something that that we're we're increasingly focused on yeah I, you know at the same time though food stories are people stories and so that so the giving kitchen is a really good example of um giving readers an opportunity to connect what is directly on their plate and in that case in an actual restaurant in atlanta with the issues that affect all of us whether it's fair labor or access or um health and and so we're always, always looking for a story, even with a data story, where there's a human component, because ultimately the sort of fact of our magazine is to make the case to people that you are far more connected to what's on the plate through many, many different hands, through many, many different parts of the country than you may think. And whatever you're dealing with in your life, work issues, family issues, there's a corresponding food story. Uh, and so I think that's what we're trying to do is to make those parallels for people that if, you know, that the broadband access you take for granted in your, you know, urban apartment, let's say, isn't fundamentally the same for the people in rural America. And why does that matter? Because those people are largely responsible for 
for putting food on your plate. Yeah. So I, we're trying to make those, those those connections for people even as much as we have. Yeah, that's data. such an important um, clarification. You know, like we're always trying to tell human stories, and you know, look at the way that you know something as big as economic policy or whatever affects individual eaters. Um, and one of the hard things, one of the fun things too about about writing about food is how um, how vast and huge and sprawling and impossible to wrap your mind around it is, and yet how intimate um, and just close to home it is. Um, and so, you know, something like data can help us sort of wrestle with some of like the, the hard to pin down aspects of this, uh, but ultimately to tell a human story about how that might affect a community or um, a, a, an individual with a certain set of concerns. Uh, you mentioned that the focus right now for new food economy is meat. Why, why did you choose that as a uh, area of focus? Well, the origin of that project, actually, and then we, we can talk about how it got much bigger than we thought, was that it was, it, it was pitched to me at the first of the year by a great food writer, Lynn Curry, out of Oregon, who uh, in January sent me a note saying, I really want to write about all the difficult decisions people have when it comes to eating meat. And I said, I love that. How can we make it a people story, which is what I'm always asking but also, how can we get it out of the world of it's right or wrong to eat meat? And Lynn happens to be kind of a master craftsman at writing about really complex, ethically contentious issues. She wrote about animal welfare as it related to the organic standards last year. It was a similar thing. It was She has a, a beautiful gift for hovering above the whole landscape. But it was like someone saying, I want to cover meat. And so, so we spent another month or so kind of developing it to figure out how we could enter that conversation, get out of right or wrong, and make it a space where we looked at feasibility, right? If everybody wanted to eat meat according to their values, whether that was religious or cultural or environmental, what would have to be true about the system, um, and particularly the industrial production system, to allow that to happen? So we wanted to look at it as sort of more a feasibility story. But we also thought, let's ask people what they're dealing with. So we, so it started out as kind of like a humble survey that Lynn took so she could identify a couple of really good characters for the piece that could exemplify the struggles. And it really turned into, you know, we put a call out on social media and we got these epic tomes in return. It wasn't just sort of like, hey, I'm out here, I'm trying to eat around my values. It would be many paragraphs of conundrums and confusion and what can I eat and how can I eat and they ran the gamut, too. It wasn't all, I'm concerned about animal welfare or industrial production. It was like, I live in this part of the country, and here's what I have access to. Or we make a certain salary, and so we have to supplement our, our diets with this kind of meat. And so it was like really um, sort of visceral reactions to that. And, and so we decided maybe this needed more of a conversation than just a single feature piece. And I pitched it to Slow Food. Um, as a potential conversation for that gathering of people. And then it turned into, let's make this a month and explore as many sides of this conversation as, as we can do. So we gave, we're, we've devoted the month of July to talking about the carnivore's dilemma. Yeah. And so turning now to Slow Food Nations and the, the panel that you're going to be doing with Lynn is called Becoming Conscious Car Carnivores. What's going to be the conversation at that event? So that's going to be centered very much around Lynn's piece, which is an overview of the landscape right now. How far out are we from being able to provide people with 
meet that meets their set of their particular set of values kind of across the board. It's that. I think she's also she's talking to four different people for this for the story who the feature will be pinned to and finding out um, how they navigate these things, how they what negotiations they make at the table in the grocery store, um, if they work in the system in some way, which many of them do. That conversation is kind of interesting because we're going to do it for the slow food uh, summit leadership, which is all intents and purposes kind of the global leaders of, of each of the chapters. So that means it'll be a highly knowledgeable audience. And then we're going to take the conversation to the public on Saturday, which may be just food curious people or food interested, and, and bring that same kind of conversation about our findings in reporting this story. And then, Joe, I want to talk um, about the event that you're doing at Slow Food Nations. It's called Farming for the Future. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening there? Yeah, so we're going to be looking at um, the sort of growing phenomenon of regenerative agriculture, um, which has a bit of a different you know, stance philosophically and environmentally than, than a lot of what's out there. I mean, most, most food... Um, you know, has a kind of adverse relationship to the environment. No, no matter how you approach it, it requires resources. Um, it takes up land, and there's just no sort of way around that. Um, <clears throat> but there's a field, you know, of, of regenerative ag that 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 does need a lot more study, but seems to be really promising in terms of um, using. Uh, holistic grazing and animals, putting animals back onto the landscape. So it's not just, you know, we have animals in a feedlot and monocrop, um, you know, uh, you know, grain or whatever over here. You actually use them together so that the animals are, um, they're grazing, their manure is being used as fertilizer. Um, and it's a much more closed loop, um, you know, sort of scenario that the hope is, um, it can not only sort of, you know, keep land from, from depleting environmentally, but also can do things like capture carbon, um, and, and actually offset perhaps if, if adopted on a wide enough scale, some of the worst effects of climate change. So this is, this is definitely, um, something that needs a lot more study, um, but has some really promising, um, potential applications. And so we'll, we'll be talking about the, the sort of, you know, perhaps future of, of sustainable farming. And that's a larger panel. Or who are some of the people on that panel with you? I don't actually know, oh. to be honest. Yeah, um, we could. I could probably look it up quickly, but they have not told me at this point. It might just be on the website. Yeah, but I haven't heard from them, so this might have to be a, a cut. Yeah. <laughs> well, all all information uh, as of they ha as as they have it now is at slowfoodnations.org. So okay. for anyone who's interested in any of the Slow Food Nations action, that's where you should go. Um, and then the other um, event that New Food Economy is involved in is the food, food resilience after disaster. Kate, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so that was a panel that Slow Food knew it wanted to have. Um, and I think they were looking for a moderator who was willing to lead that discussion. And we ended up devoting quite a bit of coverage last year to, um, to just the rash of natural disasters and the impact on the food system um, from lots of different angles. But one in particular post-Harvey was to look at how food banks served as a kind of informal network for shepherding food donations through the chain um, of the city and got people food. And it ended up being kind of a, 
unexpected because the, 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 the primary food bank in Houston was totally inundated, including all of their trucks. So they ended up serving kind of as a logistical hub where they brought, you know, everyone from the lay people in the neighborhood who brought product to religious leaders and kind of just served as a hub, an, an informal hub after the disaster. And I think they learned a lot from that experience about how food banks can function, not just throughout the year uh, as a source of supplemental nutrition for people, but how they can be really, really instrumental in a disaster um, in ways you wouldn't maybe think in organizational, um, in an organizational capacity, because they have such a, um, a knowledge of what's happening on the ground in a particular city. So that's a conversation we wanted to have as we have now officially entered the next hurricane season and mm-hmm. um, and kind of lessons from the field, I think, in terms of getting food to people after a, a natural disaster or any kind of disaster, I should say, man-made or otherwise. And it'll be interesting since there are people from all over the country coming to Slow Food Nations, and obviously there's many different types of disasters that we're having to deal with more increasingly. Um, I'm excited for that event. Um I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the podcast that you guys are working on. Obviously, we love podcasts here. <laughs> yeah, that was a, it's a it's something Joe and I have wanted to do really since we started um, working for New Food Economy. It's uh, we both have radio backgrounds. It, it was it was just you know there's a kind of story you, storytelling you can do in sound um, that you can't do on the page as well. So we knew we wanted to do that. But it is really very much an alternate distribution model. So in some ways, it was about us building up enough staff and enough um, readership to really make a case that, that we should make the investment in one. So we are maybe halfway through the reporting on a three-episode pilot. But I should say it'll center, I think, very much around the food conundrums that we um, are talking about in Meat Month, um, around kind of the pressing issues of our, of our moment that people continually grapple with and maybe don't fundamentally understand and have tons of questions about. And there were lots of ways we could have gone with this podcast, but most of our readership tends to be pretty in the know, sometimes kind of wonky. And this is much more um, about uh, reaching people at the table, literally at the table in some cases. And just, you know, even if you write about food for a living, I mean, I know know we both do. There's, um, There's just so many... There's so much we don't know. There's so much we can't see. There's so many anxieties we have about doing the right thing or the impact of our, you know, personal choices on, on, you know, on people and places, you know, pieces of land far away. And and so we're trying to really um, delve into some of the, just the, the human stories of those decisions um, um, in a lot of different ways. So we're, we're pretty excited about that because it's, you know, often in our reporting you know, there are human characters and we're focused on that, but you, you can't necessarily, um, just listen to somebody talk about their, their attitude about, you know, composting or buying eggs or something for, for, for half an hour and on a, on a text piece, the same way you can with a really wonderful character who kind of can take you on a, on a tour. So we're excited just for the kinds of different types of storytelling we'll be able to do. And to, to, I think, ultimately be a reflection. I mean, I think that's what Meat Month is for us as well, is is to kind of reflect back to people what, what we hear from them all the time mm-hmm. um, and, to, and to give people a sense that you're, you're really not alone in your personal struggle uh, as it relates to food. Yeah. All of your anxieties, all your confusion, all your questions, they're shared by tons of people. And so in some ways, I think the podcast yeah. is, is opening up the conversation to the wider community about 
what concerns people as yeah. they're making choices. And it's sort of it's sort of perfect for where we sit in the food media landscape because we're not an advocacy organization. You know, we don't necessarily really want to tell people what to do. We just want to sort of arm them um, with the best facts that we can. So it's a great. Uh, opportunity to sort of delve into the subjectivity of food and all the different issues that people project onto it um, and all the different choices that we make and, and just sort of revel in that because um, it's really interesting. I mean, you sit around a Thanksgiving dinner and you look at everyone's different dietary preferences and it, it just tells you so much about the world and, and our culture and the different kinds of people in it. So that's the kind of thing we hope to do. Awesome. Um, well, I wanted to ask if there's any other big news on the horizon or any other things you're super excited about with Slow Food Nations this year before we wrap things up. It's my first time, I think. Is it your first time? I'm excited I went, just to yeah. go. No, I went last year, but just as a reporter um, and to file a story from the ground there. So this is a totally different kind of involvement, which we are excited about. I mean, I think... What you get asked to come and do conferences, you know, I'm sure this is this is true for Heritage, too. It's sort of like half of your job is going and, you know, attending a conference or appearing at a conference. But Slow Food and the community of Slow Food is so aligned with a lot of the unstated mission of our publication. Not so much as it relates to food, but as it relates to deep intention about the way we eat. Um, and so it's just nice to be able to have to bite off a big conversation with a, with a community of people that are there because they really intend to rethink or to be instrumental in helping us as a culture rethink food and our relationship with it. So I, I think I would say that. As far as what else? Geez, the podcast. I mean, this has been a really interesting year for us in terms of, of growth. We did double the size of our staff in the fall. So we're starting to really see, you know, there's a learning curve coming in uh, as a general assignment reporter, let's say, and, and, and diving into the, the most opaque, perplexing system, except maybe for healthcare that we have. So we're starting to see like a lot of the really wonderful fruits of our new reporters uh, and producers. We're delving into video. Um, it's a lot of, of in, this, is, this has been the year where, where we've indulged some really long-term ambitions for the magazine. Um, finally yeah. <laughs> had the chance to do that. Yeah. I've been amazed and, and impressed and, and happy, um, by the way we've continued to be able to attract people to the site and, and not just, you know, beyond us, but the way that food news has continued to sort of, um, drive conversation and be important. I mean, the news cycle right now is obviously insane. Um, there's so much demanding our attention all the time. Um, and somehow even through that, you know, um, Whole Foods makes, you know, front page news, you know, the farm bill is trending on Twitter, like, like people are still paying attention. And I think there was a little while there, you know, at the end of 2016, when I was like, Oh, my God, is our beat just gonna, is no one gonna have room for this anymore emotionally. Um, and I think there's some of that. But I also think, no way, you know, there's there's really been this continued increase in, in interest um, in the kinds of stories we want to tell and the kinds of stuff you guys are doing. And, and um, I've just been really, really, um, you know, gratified to see that. Yeah, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I feel speaking to what you're saying about the news cycle, Joe, is that that can all be kind of spinning out of control, but there's still such a value in, in really trying to understand a topic and make sense of it. Yeah. And I think people are always going to find that valuable. And you guys do a great job of it. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And, and you do as well. Yeah, I mean, with food, it is something like, you know, here's something I can maybe do a little bit differently today, 
you know, like I can't necessarily change some crazy policy or get my congressman to listen to me, but I can um, engage in this in food with this delightful way or this somewhat more mindful way or whatever. And and I think that that's uh, you know a positive thing for people. And in a way, it's an anchor in a kind of spinning hurricane-like news cycle. Um, you know, if it was our job to just get people interested in NAFTA just because NAFTA, that would be a challenge. But we have the, this thing that we all absolutely have to contend with every single day, which is food and choices about food. And, you know, incredibly for us, as Joe said, that, that makes news in ways I don't think we ever would have expected two years ago. But there seems to also be an increase in food literacy um, in general, in the public, and the willingness to to hold um, the entities responsible for for growing and getting us our food uh, accountable for their actions. And so I think that's interesting. And, and, you know, if we can say to people, the way to understand the trade war today is to have this and that on your plate because it's an absolute tangible um, manifestation of what's happening in the White House. And that just is an anchor. It just gives you, a, you know, okay, let me understand Supreme Court as it relates to wedding cake. Like that's mm-hmm. just an, that's a way that we can um, offer people a chance to, you know, or an opportunity to think about these things in, in a different way. And then not, not so intimidating way. Right. Yeah. Or detached. Right. Um, all right. Well, to wrap things up, can you guys tell our listeners where they can learn more about new food economy? For sure. Newfoodeconomy.org is the website. You can find us on all the social channels. Uh, we do spend a lot of time on Twitter. That seems to be where a lot of our audience lives. So that's a good place to reach us. Um, and well, we've got a newsletter that you can sign up for there. And it comes twice a week. Um, you know, and we obviously, you know, have the stories in there, the features we've been doing. But um, we also spend a lot of time doing what I think is a, is a, is a really thoughtful, but also sort of lighthearted and somewhat irreverent um, roundup of, of the other food news happening um, that week. And, you know, it's something you can read in, in two minutes. Um, and, and, you know, like we like to say, if you, if you just read that, you know, spend five minutes a week reading that newsletter, you will really have a grasp on, on everything that's, that's going on um, in the world of food. So um, those are probably the two best places to find us. Is that. And it's free. And it's free. Yes, most yeah. importantly. <laughs> All right, and then we, I also do just want to mention too, again, that the events at Slow Food Nations are Farming for the Future, Becoming Conscious Carnivores, and Food Resilience After Disaster. And you can go to slowfoodnations.org to learn more. Click on the schedule and you can find those and many other really thought-provoking panels that will be happening that weekend, um, July 13th through 15th. Um, once again, Joe Fassler and Kate Cox from New Food Economy, thank you so much for joining me on HRN on tour. Thank Thanks, you. Scott.